I am so proud of these guys. Give these guys a hand for leading this morning. I mean, he's got like a notebook up here. He, he takes his work seriously. This is awesome. Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, we are starting a brand new series. It's going to be a three-week series called Honest Doubt. And every year, about this time of year, I try to uh, think through um, what are some, a, a topic I can really focus in on, hone in on with my outgoing seniors especially. And I know that this is the time of year where outgoing seniors are like, dude, I am not in high school anymore. Just don't even talk to me like I am. I am a college student now. Um, but you, you are eventually, but not quite yet. So, um, but obviously this, this, this series will tie in with everybody. It's not just for them, but it's, it's really something I'm thinking about, um, especially for them. And so I'm going to talk, today is week one of this series, and then um, I'm going to speak in the main service next Sunday on the same topic, but a little bit of a different message in the main service. Um, there'll be some overlap. And then Shannon Sword, is Hannah here today? Hannah's here. Here you are. So your daddy, can you say daddy? It's your, he's your daddy, right? <laughs> daddy. So he is going to speak next, next, uh, next week on this stage, next Sunday. And I hope he doesn't embarrass you like I just did, but, um, you know, he might. I don't know. Uh, so he's going to speak next week on this stage, and then I'm going to close up the series in three weeks, and that'll be um, how we do it. So Shannon's going to talk about um, suffering next week. How do you work through doubts of suffering, okay, and those kinds of things. So he's going to focus on that, and then we'll wrap up the series on May the 29th um, uh, in, in about three weeks or so. So um, now I have... I have taken this whole series from a book that you should go read, and the book is called Doubting by a guy named Alistair McGrath, and he is a thinker. Like, he is a dude, um, the dude's got a British accent, which makes him way smarter than anybody in this room, and he teaches at Oxford University, so he's bigwig, but this book is really accessible. It's a short read, and I know you guys are looking for some extra summer reading material, so um, this is a great book. I recommend that you read it. But most of what I'm talking about today, next week, and then the third week will be based on what I'm reading out of this book. I have seen so many students um, come through our ministry here and then, um, and then graduate and not just graduate from the church, but graduate from, or not just graduate from school, but also graduate from the church and their faith. And I've seen it happen over and over again. I've seen students say all the right things. Um, serve in all kinds of ways, but then walk away from their faith once they leave this place. And I think much of it has to do with how they handle their doubts. I think it all comes down to how they handled their doubts. And this is why we're doing this series. You and I know we live in a world that doubts everything, right? That's skeptical of everything. It is cool to doubt everything, including your gender, right? It's cool to question everything, cool to doubt everything, and nothing is concrete, nothing is true, nothing is, can be nailed down. And if you're someone that doubts everything, if, if, if you're someone that doubts everything, if you're the skeptic, you can often appear like the smartest person in the room. You guys know people that are skeptical and just question everything. And this person, if, if this person is at your school, this is the person that everyone sees as like, they just seem so mysterious, Right? They're just so intelligent. They just have an argument for everything you say, and they're just so mysterious, and it's intimidating. And um, I've, I've told you before about 
my uncle, I have an uncle who lives in Houston. Um, long story short, he is known him my whole life. He's my uncle by marriage, not my uncle bi- bi- biologically, but he's my uncle. And he um, is a total atheist. He's in his mid-60s. He's a doctor down at MD Anderson. He is an anesthesiologist. He, I've read his resume. I don't understand the words on his resume. I mean, he's, he's, he works with pacemakers. Um, before he went to med- he actually went to medical school. He went to medical school in his mid-30s, right? Most guys do that when they're like 22, right? They leave school and they go to medical school. Um, he already had his Ph.D. before he went to medical school, right? Really smart guy, um, raised in a Jewish home outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just never saw the point of religion or Christianity specifically, and has always been an atheist. And now he's at MD Anderson as a doctor, been there for 20-some years, and he is making great money. He is um, kind of one of the mover and shakers at that place down there. If you know anything about it, that's a big city down there. It's like a city hospital. And, and so, but he got diagnosed with a brain tumor about two years ago, and it's not looking good. And he's just a very kind of isolated, alone kind of a guy. And so my wife and I went down to Houston uh, two weeks ago to, for her to go to a conference. She went to a conference for her counseling stuff, and um, I was going to be there for, for two days. And my uncle can't drive right now because he's having seizures because of his tumor. And so all he can do is call an Uber driver to come take him to his appointments and stuff. So I said, hey, man, I'll be in town. Can I help you drive you around to your appointments? He said, That's, that'd be great. So we had like a day and a half to spend, or part of a day and a half to spend together just to sit in the car and ride to appointments and sit in offices and talk. And the funny thing is, he's a guy that will talk to you about faith. He's a guy that will engage you. I go into his house. He's got apologetic Christian books that Christians have given to him. Doctor friends at his hospital have given him. He's read them all. And he has responses for almost everything that you say. And so we begin talking a little bit in the car explain to me why he's a, an atheist and why he doesn't believe what I believe. And I'm trying to, you know, push back a little bit and ask him questions and challenge some things. But when you meet someone like that and you encounter someone with those kinds of degrees and they use lots and lots of big words and they are extremely intelligent, I'll admit he is way more intelligent than I am. You find yourself intimidated by someone who is that doubtful and that skeptical. And it's not just people like him that have questions and doubts, but Christians can have doubts as well. Christians can be, can struggle with doubt in the same way. And I want to ask you this question. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you question everything? Even though you're a Christian, like you've come to a place where you just, you you just question everything and you start to think to yourself, um, I mean, let's be honest, there, there are times in our lives when Christianity makes perfect sense. I find myself thinking sometimes like, you know, yeah, this, this totally makes sense. Like when I'm encountered by certain things that the world um, throws at us or um, when someone throws out an idea of there is no God, there are times when I think my faith makes perfect sense. But then there are times when Christianity seems to make no sense, right? Like when you're reading the Bible and reading some crazy story, um, and you're, you're reading a, a, about a miracle or Jonah being swallowed by a fish or some outlandish story that you go, man, how, and we look so dumb. Like, how did this, how is this true? 
And so you can find yourself questioning everything, um, even as a Christian. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it seems to make no sense. In fact, you're not alone in this. If you go to my next quote, this is C.S. Lewis, another smart British guy. You'll see a theme this morning. Um, he said this quote. He says, when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. So he's saying that this doubt that he's experiencing is not always something that he thinks, like he, he thinks rationally, intellectually, that what he believes is true and accurate, but he often feels like it may not be. That's where his doubt creeps in. So you might say it like this, doubt is often something we feel more than something that we think. Doubt could be something that you just, it just sort of invades your emotions and your feelings and it kind of gets wrapped up. And if someone says, well, why are you doubting? You may not have a real answer and say, well, it's because of this, this, and this. You might just say, I don't know, I just, I just doubt. I have questions, I have doubts. And it can be tied up in, in your emotions and your feelings. And this is why I want to discuss this um, the next few weeks, because um, doubt is a word that we throw around a lot, but the question is, what is doubt? How do we define it? So I want to tell you this morning what doubt is not, and then what it is. So here's what doubt is not. Doubt is not skepticism. It is not the decision to question everything. That's not the kind of doubt we'll be talking about through the series it is also not unbelief, which is the decision to not have faith in God. So we're dealing with a very specific kind of doubt in this series, and here's what that is. Doubt is asking questions or voicing uncertainties from the standpoint of faith. You might ask yourself, I thought doubt and faith were polar opposites, and I understand how you might think that. But I'm going to show you through the series that Often, faith is mixed with a lot of doubt. And we're going to talk about how you can still have some doubts and still be a faithful Christian and still be a God-fearing, God-loving, um, Jesus-loving Christian in the midst of your doubt. So I know that even though many of you are Christians here in the room, you still have questions. We took a survey um, a month ago. One of the questions was, um, do you classify yourself as a um, I think we said a churchgoer or believer and follower of Christ. We had a couple of other options on there too. And do you know that like almost every single person in this room said believer and follower of Christ? And I'm like, we need some non-Christians up in here. Like we do. We need some more people in here that have some questions and some doubts. I know you have doubts, but um, some people that are skeptical. I love that. I'd love for someone to come in here and say, hey, I'm not a believer. Let's talk. I'd love that. I don't believe anything y'all believe, Let's, but I want to come and see what y'all are talking about. I would love that. So um, I know many of you would claim to be Christians, but, um, but you still have questions and doubts. And so we'll be discussing these at, throughout this series. Um, this is why I think doubt becomes such a big deal, especially in the teenage years, because here's how many of you come to faith. Many of you come to faith like this. You learn about Christ when you're young, all right? when you believe everything else your parents tell you, right? So you believe, uh, you come to believe in Jesus at the same time you come to believe in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy, right? And, and then there's that mean kid at school who reveals that Santa's a hoax, 
the tooth fairy is really your parents, and someone killed the Easter bunny. There's that mean kid. Like, how many of you guys were that mean kid? Raise your hand. You were that kid. They ruined everyone else's. It's so funny. I could, like, I've so predicted that and that back there. Yes, I could have predicted all of you. You just seem like that kind of person, Faith. Um, they would do that. And everybody has that, that kid at school, right? So, um, so what happens is you move into your teens, and you begin to have doubts about your faith. And let's be honest, a lot of Christianity and even the story of Christ can seem like a fairy tale. And what happens is you start to think, man, it, it's, it seems kind of cartoonish. Like, this whole thing just seems like, I don't know if I... I don't know if I fully buy into everything that we're talking about as Christians. So you move into your teens and you begin to have doubts about your faith. But you don't think you're allowed to have these doubts, so you keep it to yourself. You push them under the rug because you can't doubt in church. Church can't be a place where you have doubts. And then what happens, you leave this place and eventually your faith implodes because you never dealt with your doubt honestly in the church. So show of hands, be honest. How many of you feel like church is a place where you're allowed to doubt? Raise your hand. Raise it high. So a handful of you. You think church is a place where you're allowed to have some doubts. The rest of you, I think, are being honest and you're saying, okay, not really. The church is not a place where you're allowed to have any doubts because, you know, we're going to give you the evil eye. We're going to look at you funny and like, you sure you want to say that? So... But you think that doubting in the church is something that's not acceptable. And I think many of you are right. We've created an environment, and part of it's fault of people like me, where open dialogue, open question, open doubting is not really permitted. And so we end up with no one ever talking about these things honestly. Um, you guys know the Ten Commandments. One of them is, thou shalt not lie. Well, one of the Ten Commandments of church attendance is thou shalt not be honest, right? You can come to church, but, I mean, who's honest in church? One of the most dishonest places in the world, right? No one shares what they're really dealing with, what they're really going through. And so we want to make sure that we understand that um, if we're going to do this series, I want this series to shift a perspective in each one of you. It needs to be this. I want you to see the church as the safest place to have doubts. This needs to be a safe place for doubts. Because if it's not, then you're going to go, retreat and go somewhere else where you can, and that's where you reject your faith. When you see the church is not a safe place for that kind of dialogue, you are going to walk away from your faith eventually. And so there's one big point I want you to get from this whole series, and it's this next point. Doubt produces depth. Doubt produces depth. And we'll talk more about this as the series goes on. But there's a man who wrote this amazing quote. And um, he's a philosopher named Francis Bacon. His last name makes me hungry. And, uh, and he wrote this quote. He's a philosopher. And he wrote this quote. He said, if a man begins with certainty, he will end in doubts. But if he begins with doubts, he will end in certainty. And I think you've got we've to unpack this statement because it's a pretty powerful statement. But let's just think about this for a moment. How does this relate to relationships? So if you come to Jesus pretending to be certain about everything, 
which no one is, you're going to end up in lots and lots of doubts and possibly unbelief. But if you come to Jesus honest about your doubt, you will end in certainty. And this plays itself out. I'll give you an example. Um, so you guys know my wife. Is my wife Courtney here today? Is she here? Did she make it in? She did. So she's over there. And, uh, and we dated for, I think, about four months um, at the early, when we first met. We started dating almost right away. And, uh, I mean, why would I not date her, you know? And um, so we started dating. And four months down the road, um, we broke up. Correction. She broke up. She broke up. I mean, seriously, you know, I mean, I was surprised too, you know, and uh, so we broke up and um, a few months later, you know, she repented and what? She turned back to Jesus and uh, I'm not saying I'm Jesus, just that her heart got right and then she came to, um, no, she didn't actually return that back in that way, but four months later, I started um, pursuing her again and she couldn't resist, so um, we started dating again, and uh, then we got married later on. But but seriously, like, we went through the season of doubt. Like the main doubt that she had was she was not sure I was like really taking this relationship seriously. And here's why: because I had my own doubts because I had been burned by girls before. I was like, I, I see the train coming. I know what's going to happen. You're going to drop the bombshell. I love you, I love you. No, I don't love you anymore, right? And that's what's going to happen. And so I was kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. And so I was being hesitant in the early stages. I had my own doubts and fears. And then because of that, that fed her doubts and fears. And she's like, I don't think this guy's really taking this thing all that seriously. And so this was like the weirdest breakup in history. Because she's like, I like you, but I don't think you take this seriously, so I'm going to end it. And she ends it, and I'm like, what just happened? Like, I, I'm crazy about you. I know it may not seem like that right now, but I, give me some time, woman, you know? And so I was having struggles. Of like, this is the weirdest breakup ever. And um, so for four months, no contact. I mean, I was like leaving little flowers on her car. I think I left a balloon one time, really cheesy. And like little notes and stuff. And it was like nothing, nothing. And so four months go by, and I'm prompted to pursue her again, and so I start pursuing her again, and we end up um, back in a relationship, and we end up getting married, obviously. Uh, But she and I went through a season of doubt in our relationship. But here's what happened as a result of that season of doubt. Doubt led to certainty. Because we we were able to question and have some doubts and honestly deal with them, it led to certainty, in a sense, in our relationship. Our relationship had been tested. And whenever I do premarital counseling with, with couples that I'm going to end up doing their wedding, um, if I ask the question, like, so what kind of things do you guys argue about? And if I get the answer, oh, we don't ever argue. We don't ever have disagreements. I'm like, okay, one or both of y'all is lying. Because no couple that's honest with each other can say, like, we never have arguments or disagreements. You're just not being honest about it. So I'm more concerned about the couple that says, we don't have any fights, than I am about the couple who deals with things honestly and gets it out in the open. That couple I have greater hopes for than the ones that just push it under the rug and don't talk about things. So um, the same thing is true in our relationship, I think, with, with God. 
that um, you have to understand that a relationship that has stood up against doubt is deeper than one where doubt was never allowed. You have to understand this truth if you're going to understand this idea of honest doubt. In relationships, doubt drives you deeper, and the same is true spiritually. Now, I'm not saying for a moment this morning that um, you go break up with Jesus. I'm, not, I'm glad you thought that was funny, by the way, over there. Um, I'm not saying for a moment that you break up with Jesus and go try out other religions, and I'm not suggesting that. But I am saying that you need to deal with things honestly as a Christian. So I want you guys to do your first just two questions this morning at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. All right, we've got to move because we have a lot to cover still and not much time. So um, let's dive back in. I want to focus our, the next part of our discussion on something I call the idolatry of certainty. The idolatry of certainty. Here's what I mean by that. One of the biggest sources of our doubt, I think, is that you and I want to prove everything with certainty. And this ends up becoming a form of idolatry. And because um, there are some people out there that refuse to believe anything unless we have hard scientific evidence That gives us proof, but I want you to consider this. Almost nothing is provable in that regard. And so when it comes to faith matters, I mean, there's a lot. I want you to see this next quote by Alistair McGrath in the book. He says, to accept Jesus demands a leap of faith, but so does the the decision to reject him. We often think of the person of faith or the, the believer as being a person that stands on this pedestal of faith and someone who questions everything like they stand on a pedestal of rational intellectualism and logic. But what we fail to realize is everyone stands on a pedestal of faith. Everyone does. Like the people in our culture right now that are making certain statements and certain declarations They are taking those things in faith because those things cannot be proven. And so if someone says to a believer, well, you know, you can't prove what you believe, so I'm going to choose not to believe it. I'm going to choose to believe this over here. Well, guess what? No matter where you choose to stand, you can't avoid the pedestal of faith. Everyone stands on a pedestal of faith. You can't avoid it. So the question becomes, where are you going to choose to stand? What kind of life are you going to choose to live? And so I think this, um, this idea of, of trying to prove everything scientifically, and if I can't prove it that way, then I'm not going to believe it, this ends up becoming idolatry in a real sense. And so a person who accepts Christ, a person who believes in Christ, yeah, it's a leap of faith. I don't call it blind faith, but it's a leap of faith. But the person who decides to not receive Christ is also making that same Um, decision based on faith. Yeah, I can't prove scientifically that Jesus is the Messiah, but someone else can't prove that he's not. We're in the same boat. We're in the same boat. Unbelief requires faith, if you can understand that concept. The kind of certainty that many of us look for does not exist in many ways. 
And I think sometimes what, what lies behind much of our doubt is this insatiable desire to know everything. Even as Christians, we can have so many questions and, and doubts, and we have this insatiable desire to know everything. And if we don't know everything, then we begin to doubt and question, become skeptical, and eventually turns to unbelief, possibly for some. I think some people think, if I can't understand everything about God, or if I can't have all my questions answered, then I'm never going to commit to Him. But the funny thing is, we don't treat human relationships like this, do we? I can't understand everything about my wife. She can't understand everything about me. Like, we've been, in, we've been together for like 14, 15 years now, and it's, we still don't understand each other all the time. But guess what? We still choose to be in relationship to each other. And that's good. And if I can't fully understand just one other human being in my life, the most important human being in my life, but I can still be in relationship, committed relationship to her, you and I can still be in committed relationship to a God who we should expect to be a bit incomprehensible, right? He's infinite. We're finite. Why are we surprised that he seems hard to understand sometimes, right? That he seems kind of incomprehensible um, for the human mind. In fact, St. Augustine, uh, an old dead guy, he's, he's from the 300s uh, A.D., he once said that if you can, he said if you can fully comprehend God, then it's not God. He said if you can fully understand God in all of his facets and all of his glory and all of his might, then it's not, it's not God. The human mind can't grab a hold fully of, of, of who this God is. So if you're someone, who's, if you're someone who has these kinds of doubts, um, I want to show you a couple of scriptures this morning. Here's the good news. We see doubt all over the Bible. You're not alone. We see doubt all over the scriptures. The, one of the places we see it is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. I want to show you three kinds of doubt you see in the Bible, in the New Testament specifically. The first is what I call hesitation or to hold back. And we see this in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, where it says, this is after Christ's um, resurrection. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, <clears throat> but some doubted. <clears throat> and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did you catch what just happened right there? Like, we always focus on the Great Commission, right? When Jesus says, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. No one ever talks about the verse, like, right before that, where it says, they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. No one ever makes that into a sermon. No one ever talks about that part of the verse, right? And yet, we know, after the resurrection, there were women that saw Jesus. They run to tell the disciples. Jesus tells them, hey, go meet me on this mountain in Galilee. And so imagine being these people walking up this mountain. And as you crest the top of the mountain, you look over the edge, and there in a clearing area, there is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And here you are standing face-to-face with the risen Savior, and there are some that just fall on their face and worship it, knowing who He is, and then there are some people that sit there and hold back, they hesitate, and they go, I, I think I'm seeing something. I, I'm not sure what this is. 
but this, this cannot be. This cannot be. So, <clears throat> verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some were overjoyed. There are some people that are, that are so excited, they can't believe it. But there are some people who are so doubtful, they can't believe it. They can't believe what they're seeing before their eyes. And you might ask the question, how can someone stand there and look at the resurrected Christ and have doubts? How can someone do that? I mean, haven't, haven't you and I um, thought things like, you know, if I could just have a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Christ, then I would have no problem ever believing ever again? Haven't you thought these thoughts before in your own mind? And yet here they are seeing Jesus face-to-face and they're having doubts about what's happening? And I want you to find some comfort in this today. And I think it's really important that God puts these stories in the Bible. People like you and me, they're seeing stuff, and yet they still have doubts. So how comforting is that for you as a believer, knowing that, you know what, it's, I think God's okay with you having some doubts. He's okay with you having some questions. He can handle your doubts. The second kind of doubt that we see, we find in James chapter 4, verse 8. And this is called um, what we call double-minded or being in two minds. Now, the word doubt does not appear in this passage, but the concept of doubt is there. So James 4.8 says this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the word doubt is not there, but the word double-minded is. And the word double-minded comes from the Greek word, you pronounce that in Greek, disukos. But when you look at it, what word do you see in that word? Psycho, right? Isn't it comforting that the Bible just called all of us psychos, double-minded? And so what it's referring to is, um, is uh, we're often of two minds. We're caught in the middle much of the time as Christians. We see the same concept in Romans where we talked about the old self, the new self, the old man, the new man. We talked about how um, as Christians, you are no longer living under the reign and the power of sin. You've been set free from that power, but you often live like you are under the power of sin still. And so we're often caught between these two places, even as Christians. On the one hand, you and I want to obey God, but we keep on falling back into sin. In fact, Alistair McGrath, you've got to really pay attention. to Look at this next quote. In the book, he says this quote. He says, doubt is a way in which God is able to deepen our faith by showing us our lack of faith. Man, write that down. That's going to take some time to digest that. Doubt is a way in which God is able to deepen our faith by showing us our lack of faith. And you might ask, what in the world? How does that work? How How does God show us our lack of faith and that somehow deepens our faith? I'll tell you, here's how it happens. Because when you realize you don't have it all together, when you realize that your faith is always has some doubt mixed in, this is when you have to lean in to the grace and the mercy of Jesus. It's when you have these doubts and realize my faith is never fully there, my faith is never fully complete, this is when you realize that you have to have Jesus. And you've got to lean into His grace and His mercy. It's powerful. You have to understand, like, you're, you're in, our inability is what drives us deeper in our faith. 
And so this is how doubt and faith can, can complement and actually work together to bring us to a place of deeper faith. Because doubt points to our frailty, our mortality, our limitations, and this drives us deeper into his grace and mercy. The third way in which we doubt, this is called doubt as a state of mind. We saw this um, in John chapter 20, verse 27, and it says, um, who's the, the main doubter, New Testament? Thomas, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. And John chapter 20, verse 27 says, then he said to Thomas, this is Jesus, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. He says, stop doubting and believe. So for some people, doubt is an attitude. And here Christ is telling Thomas to stop living with an attitude of doubt and start living with an attitude of belief. And I want you to think for a moment about this concept. Why do you think God allowed a guy like Thomas to be one of the 12? I mean, let's even look at Judas for a moment. Have you ever thought about why Jesus would allow Judas, the man that would betray him, to be one of the 12? Why couldn't Jesus have just allowed someone on the periphery or someone who was like a, a non, like not real close to Jesus? Like why couldn't that have been the guy who sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver? Why did he allow like one of the 12 like to do it? And why does he allow someone like Thomas who's a, an incessant doubter? Like, like why does he allow him to be one of the 12. I think here's why Jesus did that. I think he wants to show us his grace. That he will allow someone who is a incessant doubter and a betrayer to be one of the 12, like the ones that were closest to him. I mean, wrap your minds around this. I mean, he could have he could have kept these guys out on the periphery and said, no, the, the 12, 12 guys are going to be rock solid, like just oak trees in their faith. And yet he allows a betrayer, he allows a doubter to be one of the 12. So I think this also shows us that the disciples were not gullible and naive. Many people will say things like, oh, these disciples, they were so gullible, so naive. They'd believe anything. They were just fishermen, many of them. They were uneducated. And here's where you see that's, that's flawed argument because Thomas was known for his doubting, his questioning. And I think Jesus puts people in the story like, like Thomas because he has people like you in mind that have questions and doubts as well throughout the history of the church. And he wants you to see in this, no, no, there's always been doubters there's always been people like Thomas that don't believe at the first glance. So I think it shows that disciples were not gullible, naive people. These are people that had questions and doubts just like the people on that mountain, just like people like me and you. And so it shows us how gracious God is. But thirdly, I also think that he puts doubters in the story so we can reach doubters today in the church. Because when you and I read the story of the Bible, we see doubters just like we see in our midst today. And I'll go back to my, one of my first points. The church needs to be a safe place for people to have their doubts dealt with honestly. You, you guys know, um, you've heard of 
Alcoholics Anonymous or groups like that for, for drug addicts. And what these people do when they come into these AA groups or NA groups, what's one of the first things they say when they come into a group? Every week they come in, they say, hi, my name is fill in the blank, and I'm an alcoholic. And why do they do this? They do it because it's a reminder that they're weak and don't have it all together. What if Christians were that honest in the church? What if before every small group, we went around and we said, hi, my name is Dave and I'm a doubter. We'd rename church DA, Doubters Anonymous, because that's what all of us are anyway. Just no one wants to admit it. And so the question becomes, how does the church become a place like this? Turn your, um, in your Bibles to Jude chapter, or not chapter, it's just a verse. Jude 22. Um, it's toward the end. And it's real simple. It says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. These are God's words to us, even as a church today. Have mercy on those who who doubt. We have to be a people. We have to be a church. We have to be a group who display the spirit of this verse. We've got to be people that show mercy to those out there, unbelievers and skeptics, but also to those in here that have doubts and questions. We have to be a place like that as a body of believers. And if God, <clears throat> if God wants to have mercy on those who doubt, how much more does he want us to receive his mercy if we're the ones who are doubting? This verse is not just a command to like, hey, be merciful to those who doubt. But if you have doubts, and I know many of you do, just look at that verse. God wants to be merciful to you. He wants the church to be a, a vessel of mercy for you in the midst of your doubts and your questions. I'm going to pray for you and you guys can finish your discussion. God, we thank you that you're a God who can handle doubts. You can handle our doubts. We know that you're a God that <clears throat> wants us to be honest, wants us to come to you, wants us to give them to you, wants us to receive your mercy in the midst of our questions and our doubts. And we pray for uh, students here, God, that are struggling, dealing with these kinds of things, Lord, these kinds of issues, that they would begin to see the church as a vessel of mercy and grace where the gospel is real. The gospel's lived out. And we see the church as a place where we can be honest and a place where we can receive your mercy, receive mercy from each other, Father, as we walk through these things and deal with these kinds of questions, Father. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and finish your questions at your tables.